Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Dr. Ariella Elmer, who is a finder of the forgotten, the hidden and the obscure. She's an academic, an archivist and an Ahmedzari practitioner in Toronto. Her PhD thesis, Trial by Battle in France and England, should give you some clue as to why I invited her on the show, but it also won the Canadian Society of Medievalists' Leonard Boyle Dissertation Prize, which is very impressive. So, without further ado, Ariella, welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here, Guy. Uh, it's nice to meet you. Um, so, are you in Toronto at the moment? Yes, I am. Okay. Actually, Toronto is overrepresented in this podcast. Um, you are not the only Torontoan. Is that the right word? Torontoan? Yeah, Torontonian. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yes. Okay. Who else have you had um, on, on here? I haven't actually looked. Uh, um, Kimmy. Kimberly Smith-Bauer Roseblade, she's been on. Oh, yes, um, yes. Also, Siobhan Richardson. Okay. Um, and I'm thinking probably somebody else as well, but if I get the wrong bit of Canada, they might get cross with me, so I'll, <laughs> I'll shut up at this point. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so um, why don't you let us know how you got started in historical martial arts? What did that look like? Um. For me, the the historical martial arts actually came out of the history research rather than vice versa, which I think is the case for most people who who get into uh, historical martial arts. I was already working on my PhD, and I had started writing the the dissertation about trial by combat. And um, first of all, I needed to get out of the house more because PhD students, when they... uh, when they start writing their dissertation, become hermits and uh, and uh, dis- you know sequester themselves in, in, inside tiny dingy apartments, and it's it's a little bit sad. And um, secondly, I I was sort of a, a completist about studying trial by combat, and I thought that uh, if I was writing an entire PhD dissertation on the subject, then obviously I had to to learn how to to do medieval sword fighting as well. I wish more academics were like that. <laughs> it's like, no, how can you possibly understand this unless you try it? Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean... I, I, there are yes, limits to that, I, of course. But. I mean, you know, there's only so much you can you can you know, practice beating each other to death. Uh, getting clubbed over the head tends to be a little bit bad for your, your academic work, but... Um, <laughs> True. To the extent that we can study it, yes. Yeah. Okay, so you... We're doing your PhD thesis, and you thought you better right. have a crack at swinging a sword. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so at the time, um, the club uh, Emma, the the Academy of European Medieval Martial Arts, was uh, had a, a salle in Toronto, and um, I had had sort of peripherally peripherally heard about them, and at some point, um, uh, they were actually teaching an introductory introductory class through the Royal Ontario Museum, and oh. I. Uh, uh, I signed up for their introductory class uh, back in 2005, and I had a terrific time with a, a whole lot of crazy people. And 
from from then on, I was hooked. I, I started coming to, to Emma, um, and I did that for, for quite a few years. Okay, so are you still training now? Um, I'm not training at, at Emma anymore, but I, I do a little bit of uh, Armizare on the side. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Who with? Um, I've been, um, uh, I have some, some friends in Toronto who are, are, uh, kind of less known in the, the HEMA community. And, uh, during the pandemic, I've, I've really just been on my own, uh, for quite a, a long time. I, I have to get back into it. Uh, yes, my friends, if you are out there <laughs> and you want to do some park training, uh, hit me up. Uh, it's, it's time to get back into it. Absolutely. And so you're primarily then, as an Amazari practitioner, you're into Fiore, correct? Yes. Um, and, and Emma was a, a little bit ecumenical. I mean, Fiore is the, the core of their curriculum, uh, not only the, the longsword, but also the, the sword in one hand, the grappling, and the dagger sections. Um, and, um, uh, at, you know, at, at the, the scholar level, we, we also did a, a bit of sword and buckler. And lately, they've been getting into Bolognese uh, material, but um, uh, uh, but yeah, the the core of what I know is Fiore. Okay, well, you're in good company because I'm a Fiorista through and through. Right. <laughs> um, so, okay, so before you got into the medieval combat side of things, you were studying for your PhD in sort of medieval law, trial by battle, that kind of stuff. How did you get, I mean, what, what drew you to that? What was the... Uh... Um, I think the, the, the draw was reading a lot of fantasy novels as a kid. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it, uh, it inspired me to do my undergraduate degree in medieval studies. And, um, uh, and then they, they funded a, a master's degree. And so I was like, well, in that case, I'm doing that too. And, um, and while I was doing my master's degree, I, uh, uh, I was in the university library one day and I, I ran into, uh, uh, a book, uh, it's actually a very old book written by Henry Charles Lee in 1866 called Superstition and Force, which has uh, a whole section, uh, a whole sort of sub book. It's divided into four books. And it, it, one of these books is a history of trial by combat. Oh, wow. And I was like, wow, this is great. There's a, a whole book about this. You can, you can study this as a, uh, as a, you know, an area of medieval law. Um, and I started looking for more material and there wasn't a lot of material on trial by combat. Uh, there's, uh, there's one other book about trial by combat in England that was actually written in the, the 19th century. Um, that's George Nielsen's book called Trial by Combat. Um, but during the 20th century, for some reason, like nobody really wrote a comprehensive history of the subject in English. And, and slowly I realized that, that there was this whole little subfield that I could write a, a PhD about that uh, hardly anybody had, had studied during the, the 20th century for some reason. And I had my own little niche. So, of course, I, I had to, to move into that. That was just too cool to, to leave alone. Yeah, fair enough. Why do you think no one studied it in the 20th century? 
That's hmm, that's that's really a good question. Um, legal history is a, a really slow moving field. It's it's actually <laughs> one of the slowest moving <laughs> academic fields there there is. Some of the some of these nineteenth century books like Henry Charles Lee are um, are, are are still kind of uh, uh, referenced uh, fairly frequently. The the main textbook uh, Pollock and Maitland's uh, History of the English uh, History of English Law is is also from the 19th century. It's it's just this wow. hugely slow moving field, um, uh, uh, because I guess it's 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 very complex and it, it you really have to have practically a whole career in it before you really uh, grasp it well enough to to write a a massive overview um, and uh, and I. I really can't explain why trial by combat specifically was uh, um, was not studied. Well, I guess partly it's because I um, uh, I guess there there wasn't like an underlying research question for much of of the twentieth century. The twentieth century was was concerned with other topics. The the nineteenth century writers were were like why were medieval people so irrational and 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 right. so brutal and um, and so religious and um, uh, and and I think the the twentieth century was was not as uh, uh, was a, I, I think not as prejudiced as you will against the the Middle Ages um, I think but well, starting in the nineteenth World War and the First World War. So yeah, <laughs> we were just as prejudiced and brutal, and um, uh, exactly. Um, well, yeah, people weren't quite as as confident that their own period was was somehow more enlightened than the Middle Ages um, for right. for much of the twentieth century, and okay. and it's really in the from about the mid seventies and the early eighties, people start uh, developing a, a new research question was which was, okay, so if if medieval people are not irrational when they're conducting trials by ordeal what exactly did they think they were doing and and there was about 30 years of, of articles kind of tentatively trying to form uh, hypotheses about this and um, and and really by the time I got to my PhD it was it, it had just percolated long enough to uh, to be a book-length work um, some of these ideas Okay, so your PhD thesis, Trial by Battle in France and England, that's right. a very general title. So <laughs> it is. It's, uh, it's hugely wide-ranging. <laughs> and I'm, I'm one of the few people who actually goes around reading other people's PhD theses. I've not read yours, but I'm planning to. Okay. Um, so why don't you tell us sort of what's in it, basically? Okay, it's... Um it is, in fact, a, a general history of trial by by combat, trial by battle, okay. from the the first records of, of the practice, which is in the Burgundian Law of 502 AD, uh, 502, okay. uh, until the the last until it starts to evolve into the uh, the the duels of honor, the duels that that don't involve courts of law, which is in the 16th century. Uh, so it. it Spans nearly uh, a thousand years, um, but at, <laughs> but at the same time, the 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 real heyday of of trial by combat was between about 
1050 and 1350. That's when almost all of the case records come from. So okay. in practice, it was, it was really more of a, a 300 year period. Oh, just a snap in time. I mean, yeah. <laughs> oh, just 300 years. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Easy peasy. And, uh, right. And, and, uh, and also I, I covered France and England because it, um, I was actually originally going to just do England. Uh, but, um, first of all, one of my, my professors suggested that, you know, uh, that England is, is sort of overstudied in the English-speaking world, and, and you need to, to compare it to other parts of Europe. And secondly, when I, I started looking at French law, I realized that uh, England, um, uh, in England, trial by combat was introduced by the Normans um, in How 1066 or, or shortly thereafter. Yeah. Um, so English. I yeah, English law as it regarded trial by combat was was really an extension of Norman law, and and as a con- and all the the French the customary law of the the French speaking continent is sort of one body of law when it comes to trial by combat. It was uh, all of the the regions of France had had rules about trial by combat that closely resembled each other. Um, Okay. So it, it was good to study France and England together as, as kind of one one unit of French-speaking law, which so, annoys so, the heck out of the English. But, but well, exactly. Actually- I was just thinking, <laughs> if by, from this approach, England is basically a province of France. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> as an English person, <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> Okay, so Hannah, I have a question about what was going on in England before 1066, because right. in my head, and I've not studied this in any detail at all, right. um, the sort of Anglo-Saxon culture in England, um, there was like people migrated over from Denmark and places like that. Uh, were they not bringing with them things like home gangs? Uh, no, and that's that's the interesting part is is that okay. we in the the old we have a fair bit of of, uh, uh, of legal material from uh, uh, pre-Norman England from from you know Anglo-Saxon Angles and and Saxons and um, uh, England before the conquest and while they did adopt trials by ordeal uh, trials uh, you know involving carrying hot iron or being dunked in cold water they did not have trial by combat. Um, and there's some question about, about when exactly trial by combat arrived uh, in Northern Europe, uh, you know, among the, the people who, um, uh, who, settled, who settled England in the, the early Middle Ages. There's this, um, there used to be sort of a, a misconception that, that trial by combat was kind of inherently Germanic, and that it... it, it um, uh, originated in some, uh, you know, some some misty northern Germanic uh, Urzeit, but um, that doesn't seem to have been what what that doesn't seem to be what the records say. Um, if anything, it, it spread out from somewhere in the Burgundian kingdom in, in kind of like southeastern France, and and all the records kind of uh, <clears throat> kind of move out from there. Okay, do you think it's possible that that's a question of it was a French thing to record them on paper or on vellum or whatever, 
rather than perhaps in other places they just didn't write it down? It's entirely possible um, okay. because, yeah, that's that's kind of where um, legal writing <clears throat> sort of starts with the uh, with, with the Burgundian kingdom. Well, it, it starts further south in, in Italy, but the, the Ostrogoths and the uh, and originally the Visigoths in Spain don't seem to have have uh, uh, it doesn't seem to have been their practice until later either. Um, but um, the interesting thing about trial by combat in Scandinavia is, is most of the the evidence for it comes from Icelandic sagas, which are uh, kind of later documents recording a period of about the 10th century. Um, but the, the 10th century is, is kind of a, a unique period uh, for, for Iceland. And right around the year 1000, uh, the Icelanders themselves uh, actually abolished trial by combat when they, oh, wow. they so, came up with so it. So they must have had it. Yeah, they had it. And it's, it's recorded in their sagas. Um, mm-hmm. But they, it, it might not have been like a, a really um, embedded in the culture. They, you know, it, it might not have been well embedded when they abandoned it in the year 1000, which is why they abandoned it. You see that uh, several kingdoms of, of Northern Europe, uh, like the Danes, also also dropped trial by combat right around that period. Huh. I have so many questions. Um, like the f- my first question then would be, if we don't have evidence of them using trial by combat, do we have evidence of sort of mortal grievances being settled, or sort of mortal questions of law being settled in other ways. Um, or, I'm or I'm sure we do, and I'm yeah, I'm not an expert on on Scandinavia. They, I mean, we do have evidence from the Icelandic sagas that at one point uh, much of, of northern Europe did practice homganga, um, but also that that they abandoned it, uh, you know, around the year 1000, uh, pretty thoroughly. Which is earlier than much of, of the rest of Europe. Because you have to wonder why. Yeah. I mean, um, it's a sword fight. How would you not want to do that? <laughs> right. Well, I'm sure they, you know, on in on the larger scale, they, they still settled, you know, large disputes by going to yeah. war and having a, sure. a mass sword fight. Um, but in, in the case of Iceland, they uh, that's the point where they established the Althing, their, uh, their first, this Icelandic parliament. Um and uh, I think they they decided that it was it was actually more practical to settle disputes kind of by this this committee method than having people beat each other to death. Do you know that's very modern Scandinavian? <laughs> it's yeah. like let's let's do this with a nice democratic system and not have all that nasty violence. That is very Scandinavian. Right. <laughs> wow. Okay. This this is going interesting directions. Um, now. So, in 1066 or so, the Normans brought some practice of judicial combat over to England. Right. So, what what was judicial combat like in the 11th century in that culture? What, um, what was the process? It was uh, uh, it was kind of fun in the uh, uh, it, you know for from a historian's point of view because it was really weird. Um, in that it was, uh, I think we we think of trial by combat as being a sword fight, um, which was not the case in the the majority of, of cases of, of trial by combat. 
it was, um, first of all, it, it probably wasn't a, a fight at all most of the time. It was, it worked the way a, a strike works in, in modern labor law. The, uh, you set a date for a big showdown uh, somewhere down the line, and then you get the two parties to negotiate and negotiate and negotiate and try to, to play chicken with each other. And eventually they, they reach a deal. And the whole point was, was for the two parties in a dispute to reach a deal before they have a big showdown and, and fight each other. Um, and, and if there's a fight, it, it actually means that somebody made a, a bit of a political miscalculation um, or a, you know, a, a miscalculation of, of the opposition. Um, and then the fight itself was, was rarely with swords, uh, swords and, and military equipment were, uh, for, uh, for, for wealthy and, and aristocratic people having a, a trial by combat. Your, your average common, uh, person fighting a trial by combat fought it with a wooden club. It was like a fight with baseball bats. Oh um, and in England, they're, they're really strangely shaped baseball bats as well. They're. They usually they have a, uh, either a knob on the end or, or almost like a, a T-square or a pick. Uh, none of them have, have survived, but the, the images show something that looks like a, a pick or, or like a, uh, a cross piece uh, on the, the head of, of the weapon. So it, it was a, a much stranger looking fight than, than we would expect. So can I just check something? Sure. In, I think in most people's heads... Um, a trial by combat is two knights having a go at it over some issue of like somebody murdered somebody or somebody raped. So some serious crime has been committed and one has accused the other. And so they're fighting it out to see whether the accuser is correct or whether the defendant is correct. That's right. Yeah. That's what's in most people's heads. But um, I just got the impression from what you said that actually most trials by combat were not done by the aristocracy. They were more commonly done by the more common people. So, so this was a judicial process that was accessible by pretty much everyone. Is that true? Absolutely, yes. Okay. Well, I, see, that's, that has completely changed my, my mental picture <laughs> of what trial by combat is. Because <laughs> right. always, I've always known that, you know, we've got pictures in some of the German fight books of, like, a man in a hole with a club, I think, and a woman with a, a rock in a veil. And right. they have to fight each other. And if the man comes out of the hole, he loses. If the woman goes into the hole, she loses. And if obviously if one of them gets clubbed to death, they lose. <laughs> right. Um, but, but that's always... We have vastly more pictures of posh people fighting in swords, with swords and in armour and that sort of thing. Exactly. And these pictures of the more common folk trials by combat... Um, are much rarer. So I've had the impression in my head that most of these fights were done by the aristocracy, but actually, that's not true. Huh. Right. Yeah. I well, think I'm we very have glad better, I called yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we have better records in a lot of cases uh, of the fights of the aristocracy because they tend to be the ones that the, the chroniclers write, uh, you know, detailed descriptions of. But when it, you... you dig into medieval legal records and you, you get these short little like one paragraph summaries of, of legal cases. There are in fact vastly more uh, cases of trial by combat between commoners. Fascinating. And they're using specialized equipment for that. Yeah. Or 
in some cases, it, it, the, the wooden club may just have been a big stick. Uh, but yes, they're, uh, they're, they're using uh, England and, and Normandy. They have these strange horned clubs. Mm-hmm. And um, in, in a lot of the German-speaking world, they have uh, very specialized clothing uh, towards the, the later Middle Ages. They're, they're all kind of sewn up into these, these tight leather suits that uh, when one receives them in the, <laughs> in the fight German books, thing. yes, they, you know, they resemble nothing so much as gimp suits. But uh, Right. <laughs> Apologies to my German friends. <laughs> <laughs> And well, we have records too from from like from from Burgundy, from northern what's now northern France. That um, uh, it, they weren't just wearing leather suits. They uh, before the fight, they smeared the the suits in in grease and uh, like fat, so that when they grappled, they they'd be all greasy and slippery. A, wow! So we're yeah. talking medieval gimp-suited mud wrestling, basically. <laughs> yes, yes, it's, it's it, that's really just not the kind of like show the last duel at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so what was the process by which the uh, trial by combat would occur? Um, so so generally, uh, in, in very broad terms, uh, in, in France and England, you have a, a dispute between two people. Um, it could be a criminal dispute, in which case it's it's a very serious crime uh, involving uh, murder or um, uh, major robbery. Treason, treason was a, a big one, especially towards the the end of the Middle Ages. Um, and um, but earlier, it could also be a property dispute. Uh, before 1300, uh, a lot of cases were about uh, who owned a piece of land. Uh, right now, we. Uh, we I, think I, that I, sure, yeah. Sorry, um, Lady Agnes Hotto, late fourteenth century England, famously, um, her father was in dispute with his neighbour over a piece of land, right? And they agreed to joust upon the disputed land, and whoever won the joust won the land, right? Oh. And on the day of the joust, um, he was taken ill with the gout, and so she went and rode the joust in his stead and knocked the neighbor off his horse and having defeated him, then takes off her helmet and reveals that it's actually the daughter, not the father who has knocked him off his horse. So there's in, okay. And the people who tend to follow the show often follow a lot of my other, my other work. Right. And Lady Agnes Hottot is the model for one of the, um, four character decks in my sword fighting card game Audacia, which so oh that's terrific! Um, I have not heard it, that story. That's have you not? Have oh wow! Okay, yes, I will. I will gladly send you the reference. Yes, I'll just okay. make a note. <laughs> um, okay, sorry, I, I sort of interrupted you there. So you said earlier on it was oh yeah um, yeah property disputes. disputes. Over a piece of land. Um, yeah, yeah, and and uh, the. Properties disputes worked um, worked a little differently from from the criminal ones, um, but uh, but basically the the process was the uh, yeah in the case of property uh, I, I was saying earlier in the Middle Ages uh, we, we we just kind of assume nowadays that uh, that people who own property can 
that it's not difficult to prove that that you own this piece of property. You just you know you produce a, a written deed and you say, well, I own this piece of property, and there's a, a registry office somewhere that that has it recorded that you own this piece of property. Um, but in the the Middle Ages. Um, uh, first of all, you might not have a written charter saying that you own a particular piece of property. Uh, it, it might, you know, somebody might show up and say, "Well, actually, it, you know, that uh, that belongs to me by inheritance through my uh, my uncle who had no children and you know uh, died young." But te- you know, technically, this is mine, even though you've been you've been farming it for uh, all your life. Um, and secondly, uh, the thing you have to remember about medieval law is that. Um, Live people, particularly the word of honorable men, trumps documents. Really? Uh, yes. Wow. So you know, Not a, true a, anymore. Yeah, <laughs> a document is, as far as pe- medieval people are are concerned, you know, up until up until the late Middle Ages or so, a document is is really it's just words written on on the skin of a dead sheep, um, and and you know, compared to the words spoken through the mouth of an honorable man, like dead sheep have no honor. Um, it's, uh, uh, so, you know, in order to prove that you own a piece of land, the the usual method would be to, to gather together, uh, a group of, of honorable men from the, the neighborhood to, to make a, you know, who who kind of look into the matter and, and make a pronouncement on the subject. But, but sometimes they didn't know. They're like, I don't know. He's, he's been living there for a while, but. Does he technically own it? Uh, we don't know. And then you have a real problem because medieval rules of, of evidence don't have good ways of, of proving that you own something. Um, and and you're going to have to, to make a deal with uh, the person who said that, that they own it. Um, and, and if you can't make a deal, if you can't work something out, um, then you might have to fight him. Okay. And so let's say it goes to the fight. What is right. that process like? Um, so it it also involved uh, a lot of, of court days. First, you have to go to court and you have to you have to make the, your accusation uh, in front of the the judge, who is probably your lord, and and then he has to send someone out to to summon uh, the person you've you've accused. And set another court date for both of you to show up and for you to make the, the accusation and for him to deny it. And then you have to pick a method. Trial by combat was never the, the default method of, of settling a, a court case. Um, so it has to be decided that this is, is not a case that you can settle on uh, with, with easy evidence or by convening a, a committee of like a, a jury of, of people from the countryside, uh, or it, it has to be decided that, that trial by combat is is really the only way to, to settle this messy, complicated dispute. And that might take a couple of court of different court days uh, of being you know of being summoned and, and coming back and, and going back and forth. And and then the eventually uh, there's a, a point where uh, where the the battle is in, in English parlance. The uh, battle is waged, which doesn't mean that it's fought, but it means that that people pledge to have a battle at a later date. Oh, so that's the same root as wager, as in a pledge. Yeah, that yeah. If this uh, happens, then so a bet. Right, right. exactly. Uh, 
uh, pretty much, yeah, the, the same. Um, huh. And it comes from the, the French word uh, uh, a gage. It's a, a physical object that you give to someone as a, a, a pledge that you're, you're going to do something later. And in the, the case of trial by battle, uh, from right from uh, about the year 1000, uh, traditionally you, you handed over a glove to somebody um, uh, to, as, as your pledge that you were going to show up for, a, you were going to hold a battle later. And the, glo- the glove was almost kind of like a, um, uh, it was almost kind of like a, a document for the illiterate. It was because gloves come in matching pairs and it was like this mnemonic uh, right. saying, you know, I have this, this glove and, and gloves are, are kind of unique uh, because they're not mass produced in the Middle Ages. So everybody's yeah. got like a, a pair of gloves that are uh, fit like uniquely, a glove. Yeah. <laughs> unique, yeah, exactly. Uniquely theirs. Uh, so if yeah. you hand one over to one of your two gloves over to somebody else, that's your your pledge, kind of like your, your certificate that you are going to have a duel uh, later uh, unless you, you make a deal before the, the day of the duel. So does that is that where the notion of slapping people around the face and or throwing down the glove comes from? Yes, yes, it does. Um, and I, I, I think people got more dramatic about it uh, later, and, and you know, started hurling it on the. Uh, well, first, it became a tradition to kind of to drop the glove on the floor and have someone pick it up, and then I think uh, by the time you get into extrajudicial duels uh, around the 16th century or so, people start to. Uh, to get really dramatic and, and slap people about the face, and that's after the Middle Ages. Huh. Okay. Uh, the, the the problem with talking to you, Ariella, is that um, I keep <laughs> like I keep going. Oh, oh, right. Okay, and then this is this, and then I kind of compl- go, go completely lose track. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is great. Okay, so so the. Glove has been handed over, and as a kind of promise that if we don't get it sorted out, we will have this battle later. Um, right. And so th- there must be some kind of legal restrictions as to what is appropriate to be settled by trials by combat. Right, and and those change uh, over the course of the Middle Ages. Um, at first, uh, property disputes could mm-hmm. uh, over if the property was worth more than a certain amount of money could be uh, settled by, by trial by combat. But that has pretty much died out uh, in, in France and England by about 1300. Um, and, and the, the trend was that increasingly trial by combat could only be used for, uh, for criminal cases and increasingly serious crimes. Um, you never really wanted to use trial by combat for a, a trivial case because if it was a, uh, you know, a, a small dispute, it could end up turning into a, a, a big dispute if, if people start physically maiming and, and killing each other over it. Um, but increasingly, it, it becomes uh, trial by combat mostly about murder and treason. Okay, and so in that case, the outcome would be. Whoever loses would be then convicted and therefore executed. That's right. Okay, so the, the stakes are pretty damn high. Yeah, towards the end, certainly. Um, you know, what, what you okay. see in some of the earlier trials by, by combat over, uh, over property was um, uh, one of the rules in France and England was that you could have a champion for property disputes, though not for criminal cases. 
Um, okay. So, so what you actually saw in in some of these property disputes were champions who were, uh, if the case actually went all the way to a, a duel, the champions were sort of incentivized, you know, not to to uh, to do anything physically that would be physically dangerous to themselves. There's there are cases where you hear about guys circling each other for several hours, kind of you know <laughs> looking for an opening, <laughs> while their principal <laughs> while the principal parties are are busily negotiating on the sidelines, uh, trying to to reach a a settlement, um, and and just kind of watching the fight and saying, oh gee, your guy is looking kind of tired. He you know he might he might not do well. Maybe you should settle now before you lose everything. So you could actually settle after the fight had begun. Uh, you could, yeah. I mean, if it was a property dispute and you weren't actually fighting uh, in, in yourself. Um. Right. Huh. Okay, and do we have any record of people being trained for these duels? Uh, we do have a few cases. Uh, in fact, there's a, a case that was um, a fellow in England was probably the very first... Uh, example of, of the English attempting something involving crown prosecution, and this was a uh, a, uh, uh, a champion who was um, uh, uh, who who kind of been uh, uh, he'd been uh, he he turned king's evidence, and uh, he the, he uh, he was kind of an outlaw who'd been uh, his life had been spared if he would. Uh, fight duels against several other outlaws, and then they started sending him around England uh, to fight to accuse other people and fight them, even though he probably didn't know them. Um, okay. And uh, I, uh, yeah, oh right, so training that was the <laughs> the question. <laughs> no, no, that, that okay. <laughs> and, but the, the notion, but, the notion yeah, of that him being a, like a, a special prosecutor. Is yeah, like, but there, there's actually okay, a record state- of. Yeah, of, of this Sorry, guy, uh, of somebody being hired as as this guy's uh, trainer, who who went around with him and, and kind of escorted him around uh, uh, England, and we think this is uh, not only the the first crown prosecutor in England, but also the the first example of a, a trainer uh, for wow. somebody. What period is this? It's about eleven hundred. Oh my god. Oh, that would be so, that would be so interesting to find out how they trained. Yeah, I, I and I've looked for you know for examples of, of you know any any kind of example explaining how they trained, but it, it doesn't. So, not that I've, I haven't really found much for that period. So I'm guessing this guy would have been fighting with that strange cudgel type thing. Yes. Okay, so he's not a knight. He's not going around in armor with a sword. He's he's a commoner. Yeah. And yeah, in fact, he's a fighting these things disreputable with... commoner at that. Yeah. Yeah. Th- does that club have a particular technical name in law? Um, in Latin, they call it a baculus cornutus, uh, a horned stick. Baculus cornutus. Okay. Yeah. Ha! Huh. Do you know? I I just I know that there are going to be some people listening to this who are going to do a little bit of research and they're going to start figuring out how to fight with a baculus cornutus. <laughs> I would like to see it. I would really like. To, I hope they. I hope they put it on YouTube because that it, it would be well, very interesting because you can use the horns to to hook theoretically. Exactly. It's it's a bit like a sort of like a walking stick or a crutch. So right. okay, if anybody listening does that, please send me a. A link to it or whatever, and I will make sure that Ariella. I will send that on to Ariella so that so that she can see it. 
Backless cornutus. All right. <laughs> Your mission, should you choose to accept it, everyone listening, is to formulate a reasonable system of combat um, for the backless cornutus. Oh my god, <laughs> that's brilliant. That would be great. Unfortunately, we don't have uh, any any good records for how one of these was constructed. I have looked. Uh, it's that's... mostly we just have pictures i can send you a whole lot of pictures and you can guess what exactly it's made of and how it's put together please do and i'll put them in the show notes so people can find them there <laughs> <laughs> okay um all right the last duel the movie um suddenly everyone is suddenly an expert on medieval law and judicial combat practice suddenly right. because they've they've heard of a movie about it or even seen the trailer and some of them have even seen the film um, right okay i'm not sure it would be very professional of me to ask you what you think of the film itself <laughs> i kind of <laughs> so... liked it actually i oh, okay you know, okay I, i've seen it yeah it's All i right. mean you have to you really have to let your eyes glaze over a little bit and and look at the big picture and and ignore the goofy details because there are a lot of goofy details um yeah i i saw that i saw that trailer and i was like i just don't <laughs> think i can i don't think i would enjoy the film because i don't like the idea of it always being kind of grainy and gray in medieval times because it's not true and the right. armor was just pissing me off mightily <laughs> and i couldn't bear it the, okay. the, the the armor i'm afraid is you're just going to have to yeah some people close their eyes for the the violence you're you're going you know if, if you you appreciate medieval armor you're just going to have to close your eyes for the armor it's it, what can i say um, ridley scott needs a smack around the head um <laughs> okay so what do you wish everyone watching the film knew about real trials by combat going in um it's um <laughs> mostly that that the process was that the the last duel was was a really anomalous duel in so many ways uh first of all it was a, a rape trial which almost never went to trial by combat um this is this is one of the only rape trials that that were were settled by trial by combat it's um, why is that I guess partly because it involves a woman fighting a man, um, which really didn't happen in the the French and English tradition. Um, didn't really happen in the German tradition either. Actually, uh, they had they had rules for it, and the rules were deliberately made super weird. Uh, you know, this is the whole case of, of the man standing in the hole and the woman with the rock in the sock. Um, yeah. And and I think the rules were made super weird to discourage. Uh, people from uh from from actually fighting duels uh between men and women and also i think to discourage women from bringing cases uh like that to court at all um okay. so and this is something weird about the the german fight books is is that uh, uh there are there are just practically no case records uh like legal documents about a woman fighting a man. There's exactly one case from from Bern in in Switzerland in the 13th century, um, about which we know very little. Um, so the the fight books are are actually possibly what they're recording is is maybe some some fight trainers' fantasy reenactment 
of, of and what he thinks maybe one of these duels would would uh, uh, what, okay. what it or, would look like. But uh, <laughs> or, or, or perhaps perhaps somebody asked him the question. We have this obscure, unusual context. You know, how do you think it yeah. would go? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and then the, these fight trainers are, are showing off their uh, their their knowledge of, of obscure practices. I think uh, okay. in the the fight books. So anyway, but on the, the the subject of the last duel, it's first of all, it's it's really weird that it's a rape trial, um, and secondly, it's it's unusual in the history of trial by combat in that it's a a, a trial by combat between uh, noblemen. Um, though in these these very late trials by combat, it was less unusual than it, it w- was before, because basically only the uh, uh, the the only trials by combat, nearly the only ones that were uh, that were going all the way to combat by this point, were ones between very privileged people um, whom the the judge kind of couldn't say no to, or didn't want to say no to, and and wanted to see the spectacle more than he wanted to resolve the case. Okay. Um, And and, and finally, it it was unusual uh, in that it it went all the way to to combat, and the combat went all the way uh, to to murder and death. Uh, That was was not necessarily the case in late late trials by combat either. Sometimes the the two men are kind of playing chicken with each other, and, and the judge lets both of them wait right up to the point where they both show up in armor on the day and fight one pass. And, and if they're both uninjured at that point, then he, the judge kind of throws in this, uh, the baton and says, okay, okay, you've both proven that you're, you know, that you're uh, courageous men. And, and now I am going to impose a settlement on this case. Oh, by that really? point, Yeah. By that point, judges who are, are usually Lords have a little bit more centralized power and they can start to impose their judgment on a case, which was, you know, often not the case uh, earlier in the Middle Ages. Wow. Huh. Okay. So, so that maybe the most important thing about the duel that occurred um, and is sort of shown in the last duel movie is that it's just weird on three counts. Yeah, and I, I think possibly okay. the reason why it wasn't forcibly settled was was a this this dispute had had really festered and, and become uh, a real personal vendetta for the the two men but b also i think from the accounts of the duel i think part of the problem was that uh legree probably wounded carouge on the first pass quite seriously uh and that put the judge in a, a sticky situation because then the judge could not stop the duel and impose a settlement Without seem, seeming to be partial to Carouge, um, because right. it looked like Carouge was already losing, um, and then he managed to reverse it and kill Legree. So, and and now I've spoiled the movie for you. Honestly, it happened like six hundred years ago. If people haven't <laughs> found out exactly. the ending by now, that is on them. I don't believe in spoilers for anything <laughs> that happened. <laughs> you know, more recently. Of course, if the movie had done what Ridley Scott very often done does with anything to do with history and just completely made it all up, then that'd be different. But if it actually right. followed, if it actually follows what kind of happened, then <laughs> right. fair enough. No, yeah. Spoilers are to be expected. Um, okay. When I, when I first saw the trailer, 
and it said the last duel. I was expecting it to be between Jarnac and Chatanire, um the run forty fifteen forty seven in front of Henry the Second, right from whence the famous coup de Jarnac comes. It was that not the last duel, the last formal duel fought before the king. Argue, well, there's actually one two years after Jarnac and Chatanier, which might, might qualify also qualify as the uh, the last duel. Okay. Yeah, it was um, uh, Daguerre versus Fondi. It was. I'm trying to remember. But his name was Claude Daguerre mm-hmm. um, versus uh, Jacques de Fontaine, Seigneur de Fondi. And um, that was kind of a similar. This is the point where, where judicial duels are. The courts have, have really long stopped uh, ordering judicial duels. But, but people who have disputes could theoretically talk to the king and get the king to grant them a field uh, in which they could settle their dispute. Um, okay, so it's it doesn't count towards being the last duel because it wasn't it wasn't imposed by a court. Yeah, kind of. The, okay. This is the problem that that there there these are two transitional duels. They're not the illegal extrajudicial duels of later, right. but they're not technically judicial duels saying when the last judicial duel in France occurred means that first you have to define what a judicial duel is and secondly you have to define what is France Um, (laughs) because (laughs) there were also several cases that happened after the you know the the quote unquote last duel that happened in in the the sovereign duchy of Burgundy Um, we would definitely uh, call that France now we would call that France now yes uh, and, and in so, a couple of, of other little tiny places um, that were technically sovereign jurisdictions where a lord could theoretically hold a, a judicial duel that was not in France. Okay. Yeah, so basically what it is is the last duel is a cool, sexy title. Let's go with that and let's not worry too much about the historicity of it. <laughs> kind of, yeah. I mean, you can make an argue for, an argument for it being the last duel, but it's not the last duel in France. It's not. It's not the last judicial duel uh, in in France. It's. Um, it's not even the last judicial duel in Paris. It's not the last judicial duel uh, approved by the King of France. It is the last judicial duel, however held before the Parliament of Paris acting as a court of law. Okay. So so not the last duel, the last judicial duel fought before the Parliament of Paris as a court of law. Yeah, that's, which is that's a bit long okay. as a movie title, I have to admit. Yeah, yes. yeah, that, that's, that's not, not a very... Well, I'm glad we got that sorted out because it was annoying me that it was... But, right. But actually, it has more justification for being the last duel than I'd actually originally thought. So that's good. I'm I'm still going to slap Ridley Scott if I ever see him, but yes, I won't slap him quite so hard. <laughs> I think that's fair. Um, okay, so you've obviously immersed yourself in the kind of the, the world and the culture of trials by combat. So what, to your mind, are the pros and cons of the practice? Um... Uh... <laughs> well, I guess the the 
crows are mostly for were mostly for the person who was acting as a judge. Uh, the pros of a, a trial by combat are that you can take disputes that that medieval judges uh, in the past didn't really have a lot of power to to settle or impose a settlement on, and you can convince these these people who might otherwise have a violent feud um, without asking for your permission, and you can convince them to come into your court and and negotiate their settlement in your court. And that gives you more power and prestige as a judge. Um, and okay. and it, it, it kind of imposes a process and a deadline on that settlement. I think that's that was the appeal of, of trial by combat to medieval people, um, that you, you take these very intractable disputes that are um, – that are, are really almost impossible to prove given the, the state of, of forensic uh, investigations in the Middle Ages and the, the state of, of evidence law, uh, you know, which just hadn't been invented or developed uh, to, the, you know, to the, the state that we think of it today. Um, and it, it gives people uh, a way to – it gives people a settlement process, and if they, they cannot reach any kind of agreement – it gives them a way to, to roll the dice at the end um, and just right. fight it out. So it, you get closure at the end one way or the other. Right. Okay. Do you think that it actually um, had any use as an establishment of truth? Um, I mean, not in, in any practical sense. Um, but I, th I think it it was a process that people used at the point when when they thought that uh, medieval. See, the thing about medieval people is uh, is that there are things that they accept that are completely beyond the ability of mortals to to figure out. Um, in our society today, we we we're very uncomfortable with the idea that there are crimes that just can't be solved. We have uh, you know entire genres of, of literature and, and film. Uh, devoted to solving the unsolvable crime. Uh, but there are, are some cases um, that medieval people were just like, the only person who knows the answer to this is God. So we're going to let God decide this. I was going to bring up the God question, because again, a picture in many people's heads was that the people who are engaging in this practice, a significant number of them would have simply believed that what we're basically doing by having a trial by combat is rolling the dice and God will determine the winner. Right. Is that accurate at all? Yeah, and, and I guess I, I'm saying, you know, we're rolling the dice, but but yeah, medieval people would have... Um, it's complicated because everybody, nearly everybody in the Middle Ages was a believer and believed that, that God might have some role in trial by combat. But actually from a, a very early stage in the history uh, of the practice, uh, the theologians were, were very uncomfortable with the idea that, that God was actually deciding the winner. Uh, you know, oh, really? but, yeah, there, were, there was a, an argument that from the ninth century onward, uh, um, where a theologian named Agobard of Lyon said basically, uh, this, is, this is what he called it, a, a temptation of God. You are tempting God to say, are you kidding? I'm, I'm not performing a miracle you know, next Thursday. You can't just say to God, hey, God, 
be here next Thursday. Don't be late. We need a miracle right here. Uh, you, you can't – as the theologians right. were saying, you can't – God yeah. doesn't take orders from you. Yeah. Um, I, I could see and, how that would be theologically difficult to justify. Right. <laughs> uh, so – so medieval people were also a little bit skeptical that God intervened every single time. Uh, they, they believed that God was capable of intervening in a trial by combat, and uh, it was their justification for holding a trial by combat, but it wasn't necessarily a reason for holding a trial by combat. That's uh, my position. Yeah, which is a lot more nuanced than the sort of the story generally put about. Right. Which is kind of what we'd expect from a specialist, actually. <laughs> okay. Tell me you are going to produce a book from your thesis, yes? Yes, that's, that's kind of been my pandemic project. Um, I've been taking my thesis and uh, turning it into something that people might actually want to read. And um, also researching some of the... the German and Italian material so that I can expand the, the geographical range and really make it a book about trial by combat in Western Europe generally. Okay, and why don't we have it yet? <laughs> uh, because I, I also have to do things that make money. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that book could make you a decent whack of cash. I Well, I hope so. Um, it's uh, well, well. It's still going to be an, an academic monograph, and uh, but I'm I'm hoping to publish it with a an academic publisher who also has a, a decent distribution system into to bookstores. Uh, knock on wood. Yes, if you are an academic publisher, and this sounds like a ter uh, terrific project to you, uh, please be in contact. <laughs> I've been drafting uh, a book proposal, um, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Brilliant. Okay. Why an academic publisher? Um, mainly because I, I want the footnotes still in, and I, I do want the peer review. There are some people who know enough about medieval law that they can uh, okay. that, that they can improve a book like that. All right. Presumably you know those people. Yeah, sort of. Okay. Here's my thought. Okay. Um, academic publishing is a gigantic scam. Yes. And the academic publishing no in particular. Yes. I'm, right. <laughs> I'm aware yeah. of that. So, okay. If your goal with the book right. is to get a job in academia, partly because that's on your CV, then you need to have an academic publisher to do it. So if the goal of the book is sort of prestige related, then your plan is good. Right. But if the goal of the book is just to, is to you know get the word out there and get get the ideas into the into the heads of the people who are interested interested right. in them, and you want to make money doing it, right? You absolutely do not need an academic publisher. What you want is to publish it yourself. Yeah, you know, that's okay. that's true. Um, yeah, and then if, if I if I go that route, then I also have to market it myself, which which is also a, a thing that that takes <laughs> time and, and work and, and Expertise. Sure. Okay, but the academic <laughs> publisher isn't going to market it for you either, right? If you want the That's book to true, sell, yeah. you have to market it yourself, no matter what. There's no That's way true. around that. Yeah. Um, but things like this podcast are a good way of getting pe people to 
talk about your book. So, for example, if your book comes out in, say, I don't know, a year's time or whatever, um, you come back on the show and tell everyone about it and that will get you some sales and they will tell their friends and I'll put it in my newsletter and, da, 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 and that will get you some more sales. And then all of your friends who do medieval combat stuff, they'll all go and buy it and that will get right. you more sales. Right. And the reason I mention this is because I make about half my living from my books. Oh, no kidding. Really? Okay, that much? Really? Really? Okay. Yeah. And, you know, I, I support a, a wife and two kids on that income. Right. Okay. So, yeah. In, so in Finland. We're, we're talking like, yeah. Okay. Uh, That's good to know. Thanks. Yeah. So, I mean, if you have a, have a think about your goals. Right. And, yeah, if it's if you need the prestige then you need an academic publisher and you, you do that knowing that you're giving up all the money, right? Right, Because you, right. Get, you get the money from the book by getting tenure at a university or something like that and then they pay you. Right, right. right. Um, and that's a perfectly legitimate approach. But if you want to actually make money from the book directly, it is really not hard to publish a book and... I mean, pretty much all the stuff that the academic publisher would do for you, like peer review and um, you know, layout and editing and that kind of stuff, that can all be that can all be done independently. I mean, literally all of it. Right, I, right. When I, when yeah, I no, that is books, a good point. Yeah, yeah I have. Um, I get my stuff peer reviewed. Um, my books have footnotes in where appropriate. I have a professional editor who edits my books and you absolutely will need an editor, of course, because, you know, right. Books need editors. Um, but yeah, these, these are all things. Basically the costs of producing the book, probably around two grand. Right. Once you've paid everyone. Right. And your publisher, if you have an academic publisher, if they pay you anything at all, we'll pay you maybe four or five. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And so they have no real need to sell the book to get their money back. I mean, if they're offering you a hundred grand advance, take it. And that's brilliant. Right. But they're not going to offer you a hundred grand advance. Right. Right. So, um, when they've got that level of skin in the game, then they market the shit out of the book and they put it on the sides of buses and, you know, you become the next Lee Child or whatever. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. No, Unlikely with, with, yeah. with this topic. Um, so if you, I mean, I've been producing my own books for nearly 10 years now. So since 2012. And yeah, they immediately started making me vastly more money. Oh really? Right. Okay, that's interesting yeah. to know. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, you have, you have kind of the um, the network of, of people. Uh, the HEMA community is, is particularly right, easy and the to HEMA community because they're all kind of be, in, in known places. Right. Exactly, and the HEMA community will be all over this. Right. Yeah. So that's okay. The 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 phrase that the people who know this stuff use is the target is not the market. Right. right. So the target is the people you write the book specifically for that you can really define really clearly. So like for me, it is like if I produce a book, another book on Fiori's Longsword, 
Um, my target is people who want to practice longsword in the style of Fiore delivery, right? Right. That's my target. That's not the market, right? The market right. is also pretty much everyone who is who does longsword actively in any way, in any style, right? Right. They're likely to buy it to find out what Fiorists are doing so that they can defeat them, right? Reasons, <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Exactly. And then. Outside that, you've got people who are sort of have a theoretical interest in sword fights, like writers, for instance, right. writing fantasy novels or what have you. And then outside of that, you've got people who you could not possibly predict would be interested <laughs> in your book. For example, right. I have um, a friend in New Zealand who is a data scientist and who is, is all over my medieval longsword book because she thinks it's a great book for data scientists. I don't know anything okay. about data science, right? And <laughs> right, I have yeah, no idea yeah. even what she's talking about. But there are data scientists who are buying that longsword book for data science reasons that I can't even imagine. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> funny. Yeah, it's and then partly I have thought a bit about the the market of this book, and I think HEMA the HEMA community is um, is part of it. But the market also includes just lawyers who like having uh, a conversation topic. Um, Right, and lawyers are all over this stuff. They they love talking about trial by combat. So I and I, I and trying to figure out how to reach networks of, of lawyers is a, a little more complicated than figuring out where to reach the HEMA community. But, right, uh, and and a significant proportion of the HEMA community are lawyers. Right, I can, for example, true. put you in touch with two people who practice historical martial arts and are high level lawyers. One for the U.S. government and one who's a um, patent lawyer with Merchant Gold, some big company in the States, right? Because right, yeah. lawyers and, don't interest yeah. Exactly. And what I'm hoping at, at, at some point is to, uh, is to get them to, to review the book for some of their trade publications, too, that reach even right. more lawyers. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, if you actually get in touch with the trade publications, you can do th- – if, if you publish it yourself – Right. You can do things like produce an edition of the book which has the trade pub- that trade publications stuff on the back. Oh, interesting. The, on okay. the back cover. Yeah. So the rest of the book is identical, so your costs are minimal. You just get the graphic designer to put whatever stuff they want and thing, and then you print off, say, a print run of however many they want, 300 or whatever, and you sell them those books directly. And 300 books, we're talking probably hardback, we're talking probably $40 a copy of which you'll keep maybe 20 if you're selling directly. So that is 20 right. times 300 is a yeah. $6,000 profit. Yeah, that's yeah, that's an interesting thought. Right. I, and I wonder in the case of lawyers, if they're more interested in the prestige of the publisher than maybe some other professions. Um, I, would, a- I would wager not. You think not? Because, okay. No, because the vast majority of people have no clue who the publisher of any book is. Right? <laughs> Literally, right, yeah. the only people I can think of who care the slightest bit about a specific publisher right. are ones who avoid a particular publisher for political reasons right. and ones who associate a particular publishing house with a particular, doing one particular thing well. So, for example, right. um, uh, Puffin Books, which is a branch of Penguin that does right. children's books. And you know if you buy a Puffin book, 
that is going to be reasonably well edited, it's going to be reasonably good, and it's definitely not going to have anything really nasty in it. So you can safely give it to any six-year-old. Right, right. But when we're talking about grown-ups, I mean, okay, who published your favorite book? <laughs> That's true, yeah. Uh, a lot of the time, I, uh, yeah. I mean, could you even tell me who published Lord of the Rings? Really? Uh, originally was, um, uh, was it Alan and Unwin? I don't know. Okay, don't yeah. Know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see? Like, I think it's been, cares. It's, it's been reprinted by, by a number of, of uh, imprints right. at, at this point, the Lord of the Rings. But yeah. yeah. But, That's a good, yeah, but it's a good we, point, we though. To, yeah. And the thing is, you have a PhD in the subject. Right. That's, that's your credentials. Right. Not the publishing house, right? So uh-huh. it's Dr. Ariella Elmer, whose PhD is on this topic. And right. in the marketing blurb, you say basically has taken her groundbreaking PhD research into the, the um, and has, um, I don't know, you find a good way to say this in the blurb, but de-academicized it for for a general readership, but keeping all of the details and all of the technical stuff, but packaged it so that basically ordinary people can read it without needing a PhD themselves. Right, like right. Okay, yeah, that's that's yeah. actually a good point. Yeah. So you are the authority. Right. Right, and honestly, I don't think anybody cares who published the book. Right, unless right. unless they are sitting on an admissions or a hiring board in the faculty of a university, then it matters. Right. Um, so that's just a thought. Uh huh. And um, obviously, you know, I think this book belongs in people's libraries. And so, if you need any help, you know, with any of that process, I'm happy to advise. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. No, that's that's actually a good thought, and I will definitely yeah. keep that in mind. And when it comes out, come back on the show, and we can you know, definitely tell everybody about it. All right. Terrific. Okay. <laughs> but it's, it's just, obviously, there is no prestige in self-publishing. Right, right. But personally, I don't publish for prestige. Right, exactly. Well, yeah. And <laughs> in your case, I think, you know, it, it totally makes sense because I, I think you know how to reach the HEMA community much better than your average publisher does. Uh, well, right. Much better than even your sav- uh, pretty savvy publisher does. Um, sure. So, and you know, and if you need to reach the human community better than you're able to now, you just ask your friend Guy, and he will sort it out for you. Seriously. All right. Terrific. Because I've I've looked at your stuff, and it's like this book should be there, and people should be able to read it. Right. And you know, the thing is, the way I work marketing wise is. I send stuff out to, for example, my newsletter, if I think I'm doing them a favor. Right. Right. So it's like if your favorite band came into town and were doing a gig in town and they sent you an email saying, Ariella, we're going to be in town next week and you can get tickets here. You wouldn't think, oh, those scammy bastards trying to sell me their shit. You'd be like, oh, thank God I didn't miss it. That's great. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Right. Yeah. So... Um, when it comes to marketing stuff to my readers, followers, whatever, that's the sort of the, am I doing them a favor by telling them to go and buy this thing? Right. So for okay. Example, when, when, when Toby Capwell's new book on the armor of the English knight came out, 
Right, I yeah. I was like, guys, you've got to go and buy this book because A, it's fucking brilliant. B, it's entirely on topic. And C, it's a limited print run because that's what these people do with these big end, right. you know, big high end yeah, yeah. books. Right. And if you don't get one while they're in, still in stock, they'll go out of stock and then you'll have to get one secondhand and it'll be three times as much. Right. Right. So I'm doing them a favor by telling them to go buy the book. And I got people right. emailing me saying, thank you so much for letting me know. And even people emailing me, showing them, showing with pictures of the book that they've bought because they're so pleased with it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, for, for books like that, yeah, and yours is certainly in that kind of area. Right. Okay, cool. You can, you can at least sell your books to everyone who buys my books. Uh-huh. Okay, cool. Yeah, well, thank you for, yeah, thank you for that advice. That, that is actually good to think about. Too. And when you thought about it, let me know if you need any help. <laughs> All right, terrific. Brilliant. Now, you mentioned Trials by Ordeal. Right. And the same people, the same culture that sort of abandoned Trials by Ordeal did they replace them with Trials by Combat? No. Trials by Ordeal were actually abandoned uh, long before, or well before Trial by Combat. Um, it was a, a process starting in the, the 12th century, but it, it really came to a head in 1215. There was <clears throat> something called the Fourth Lateran Council, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a, a council of uh, a very large council of, of bishops who uh, ruled that um, that the the church was no longer going to participate in trials by ordeal. These trials where someone might have to carry a, a piece of, of hot iron a certain distance, uh, a trial where someone might be uh, uh, immersed in, in cold water uh, to see if they floated. Uh, but as of, of 1215, because of, of these theological uh, questions about the uh, about whether this was really a, a judgment of God, um, the the bishops decided that it was no longer admissible for churchmen to participate uh, in trials by ordeal. This had not actually been a practice in church courts; it had been a, a practice in secular courts. But you still needed a uh, a priest to to bless the hot iron and make it magic. Or bless the water and make it, it magic so that the the, the person uh, it would you know reject uh, a guilty person and, and make them float, um, and and without the, the the priest to to kind of do the the woo woo part, people were like, well you know obviously this isn't a miracle then, um, and okay. these unilateral ordeals that were dependent on 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 a miracle in order uh, to work started to to make no sense and were quickly abandoned. But in the case of a trial by combat, you can, you can still have a combat. And, and even if God isn't participating, it's you, you come to some kind of a, a, a decision uh, at the end of it uh, because it's, it's a two party uh, type of an ordeal. So it okay. was a, a little bit different. And I think it also had more support among the nobility who were kind of belligerent and liked having the right to be able to fight each other. Uh, so trial by combat survived. Okay, so they existed um, at the same time as each other. Yes, yeah. Okay, uh, so how would you choose one over the other? So let's say it's 1150 um, in England and 
there's right. the hot iron approach and there's the trial by combat approach. How do you how do you distinguish between them? How do you choose between them? Generally, in the case of trial by combat, it meant that both parties in the dispute were considered um, they were men and they were honorable men, uh, and they were okay. and there were, it was hard to to decide between them and they were but they were both considered people of good reputation. Uh, in the case of trial by ordeal, it was always unilateral. It was always only one party in this dispute was going to have to carry the hot iron uh, or, or be dunked in water. And it was always the party who was a little bit disreputable. Um, and, okay. and a lot in, in medieval law depended on, on what your neighbors thought about you and whether sure. they thought you were, you were actually a person who could, who could make an oath and that oath would be worth something. And if your oath was a, a little bit questionable, uh, then you that might be a reason why you were sent to a, a unilateral trial by ordeal. That doesn't seem very fair, does it? <laughs> <laughs> well, well again, okay. this is this is uh, yeah, this is uh, this. A lot of this has to do with uh, this being a society that doesn't. Ha- Prove people's bona fide bona fides by uh, by documenting things. Nowadays, if if you want to prove that you're a, an honorable person, you can you can show people your credit rating, and you can show you have evidence uh, of your university degrees, perhaps, yeah. or your um, uh, you know your your record of employment. You have you have pieces of paper that you can show people uh, to show them that uh, that you can that you can, you can do things and you can keep promises. And medieval, medieval people had none of that. They had their reputation among their neighbors. And their reputation among their neighbors was hugely important to them because that decided who they could marry and who they could apprentice their children with. And it decided whether they could buy anything on credit. Uh, it, it decided uh, so many things uh, that, that they needed to do in their daily lives. Wow. Okay. And so the trial by combat is really there because you have two people who are respected in their community and it's not like, okay, this person is is a known liar and a bit of a thief and nobody likes him. That person is a pillar of the community. So obviously we'll say, yes, the person we don't like, they can have a trial by ordeal if they're denying the charge. Um, But we wouldn't make somebody like that fight somebody's so far below him on the social scale. Right, exactly. Yeah, we wouldn't make somebody like the, the respectable person do that. Ah, it's fascinating. Okay. Wow, all right. I have a lot to think about, and I'll probably have to <laughs> have to um, have you back at some point to, to answer my next round of questions. Um, but before we do that, there all are right. a couple of questions that I ask most of my guests. Um and the first is, uh, what is the best idea you've never acted on? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I usually what I have are, are really terrible ideas, um, and and then I, I figure out how to make them work. Um, uh, like having, uh, you know, getting a PhD in, in medieval studies is actually a really terrible idea. It's a terrible because idea. It's, it's, <laughs> It's financial yes. folly. It really is. I'm, you know, yeah. I, I hate to discourage medievalists, but it's it's an act of financial folly. But I, I you know, I, I somehow made it work. Um, 
and um, and 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 some of my other ideas were, were kind of crazy, but but you know with with a lot of research they can be made to work too. A couple of summers ago, I went backpacking in the Republic of Georgia, um, oh, wow. in, in parts of the Republic of Georgia where where people speak no English, uh, mainly Georgian, and. Uh, but I, I did a, a truckload of research and actually had a lot of fun going through uh, odd bits of, of Georgia and um, uh, figured out how to uh, – learned enough Georgian to, to, to speak to taxi drivers who generally don't speak English in Georgia and, and get around the country and saw some cool stuff. So I, I guess what I have are, are terrible ideas that I, I kind of hammer into shape until they become fairly good ideas. <laughs> That's a good approach. So, what made you pick Georgia? Um, it's uh, I I've slowly been going east in my my backpacking adventures, and Georgia was uh, it, it's this country that's kind of on the edge of Europe. It, it has all kinds of uh, of terrific medieval monuments and and amazing food and nice weather and gorgeous mountains. Um, but it, it's, I think, a little bit less. Tra- certainly, by Canadians, it's a little bit less traveled. Um, it was just starting to become popular in, in 2019 before the the pandemic hit. Um, so I, I wanted to go backpacking in somewhere that was kind of medieval, but but kind of uh, or that had a, a medieval history that was kind of like Europe, but uh, uh, but was was a little bit offbeat. Well, I think I think you cracked it with that one. Um, am I right in thinking that there is a Georgian practice of like sword and buckler? I there seem there to is. There's an, yeah. There's an oral tradition that I think some of the, the last practitioners uh, have passed away in, in recent years. I tried to get to the, the heartland of that uh, uh, of that, that practice in, in Khevzureti, um, and there's a, this amazing fortress village called Shatili, way up in the mountains, up on the the, the border with uh, with Chechnya. Um, but it's it's quite difficult to get to Shatili. Um, it's a, a dirt road uh, that's that's not maintained in the best way uh, through very steep mountains. And uh, I hired a, a guy with a, a jeep to uh, to get me there, and we got within a few kilometers of, of Shatili, and um, and got to a point where uh, a rock slide or a, a, a sort of a dirt slide had washed the entire road into the Argun River. Um, and we were stuck on, on one side of it and Shatili was on the other side. And on the far side, there was also a, a guy with a bulldozer whose bulldozer had broken down, who was looking kind of sad. And we were in the, the depths of this huge mountain gorge where nobody's cell phone worked. And so nobody could rescue the guy with the bulldozer. And and this was the point where I was was really happy I I'd, I'd hired a guide for that leg because he he was like nope this isn't going to work we're going to have to turn around and he he came up with a, a plan B and we went hiking uh, in in Khevsoreti a little uh, a little further down but one of these days I want to get to the fortress village of Shatili um, and I think there are some people in in Tbilisi who who practice Georgian historical martial arts. I have not met up with them, but it would be interesting to talk to them as well. I... Yeah, and I have a friend who I'm not sure if he's in Seattle. But he, I've I've met him at events in the Seattle area, who 
has Georgian heritage and showed me a copy of a Georgian sort of manual that describes sword and buckler stuff. So, right. I think there's there's a, a Georgian book or a manual. It's it's. Mm. I'm not sure if it was originally Georgian or if it. Uh, there's also a, a Russian edition, which might be a translation. Uh, I know some of the folks on on the American West Coast are are looking into to that. Right. Uh, and I, I uh, sort of know a few of them through Facebook, and I've I've they've been doing some interesting work that I've been following. Cool. Okay. Yeah. There's. It's a part of the world I've never been, but it, you're definitely selling it to me. <laughs> I should I should go to this remote mountain village and I should study sword and buckler with people who can chop my head off. That's a great idea. <laughs> it's yeah, it's great. Terrific food in in Georgia and uh, really uh, amazing people. They have this this tradition of, of hospitality to travelers, um, which is is just amazing. Um, and you should yeah, if you can go to Georgia, it's it's been it's yeah, they've been having a rough couple of years, but um, it, I bet. it's uh... wonderful. Okay. Um, now, my last question. Somebody gives you a million pounds, dollars, the currency doesn't really matter, um, to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. Or in your case, perhaps knowledge of medieval practices right. worldwide. How would you spend the money? Um, it's an interesting question. Uh, sadly, uh, a million, a million dollars, even a, mer- a million American or even a million British pounds is, is not going to buy you a training cell in Toronto. It's real estate is, is terrible here. <laughs> well, um, I mean, it's imaginary money. So you yeah, can have yeah, 10 million yes. if you want. <laughs> right. Um, but I think what I, I would want to do is I would endow some, um, some doctoral degrees and to get people to look at the interconnectedness of these global traditions uh, of, of historical martial arts, because I think that the European tradition is now being well studied. Uh, mm-hmm. But we also have a huge body of manuals in Arabic uh, that right. I think people should should study and start to, to look well, at, at how... Yeah. Dr. Dr. Khorasani, uh, who's been on yes. the show, yeah, he he, does, he's he does, done fantastic work in that field. He's but been yes, doing fantastic stuff with, with Persian manuals, yes. Yeah, there's um, not an awful lot of people doing that, though. I don't think. No, I don't Actually think so. And I, you know, okay. yeah, I think if I were, uh, if I, you know, had a, a lot of money to endow an institute, I would, uh, I'd want to know more about the interconnectedness of these traditions because also the Georgian tradition is. Um, uh, Georgia was invaded by Persians at one point. I think a lot of these, uh, by actually more than one point. Uh, and, and I think a lot of these traditions have, have like interlocking histories um, that, well, yeah, that would, would be really interesting to to investigate. Yeah, whenever you get military powers or you know, cultures fighting each other, there is always an uh, interchange of material and ideas and tactics. And, you know, I mean, right. which, which, which persists in, you know, why, why do we call petrol cans, jerry cans, well, because the British Army ones were a bit rubbish. And so whenever they got the chance to nick them off the Germans in the desert in the Second World War, that's what they did. And the Germans were called jerry. And so it's a jerry can because the German ones were better than the British ones. And so they used the German ones. Oh, okay. (laughs) German engineering, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But there's, so there's always going to be this um, 
you know, borrowing bits of taking armor and weapons and adapting them maybe to local things. And there's, there's a, whenever you get that kind of conflict, you always have this interchange. It's not just people murdering each other. There's there's this kind of cultural exchange that happens when people fight. Um, yes, exactly. And I, I think we could learn a lot, uh, even about the European tradition, if we knew more about some of the other traditions. I'm uh, absolutely. I'm fascinated. I have I have a pet theory that I, I absolutely can't uh, uh, justify that the the really strange uh, tall dueling shields from from Talhofer and, and some of these German manuals yeah. are, are actually African in origin because you you really don't see a lot of shields like that in the European huh. tradition with a a central pole down the back uh, that's the handhold um, like a Zulu shield yeah exactly but but you see the shields like that. Uh, through you know, pretty much throughout uh, sub-Saharan Africa, um, and and the the really odd shape of the Talhofer shield kind of reminds me of a, a an animal skin stretched, uh, the way that uh, that some of these uh, African shields are 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 an animal hide uh, stretched over uh, yeah, I mean, like over some sticks. Yeah. My 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 feeling of those dueling shields is that they are basically a raw hide so an entire hide right being dried in a particular way so that it, you know because raw hide is pretty tough but it's not exactly yeah it's not heavy not not particularly heavy right so you can make a shield that size i mean i have friends who've made shields like that out of plywood and you can barely lift the bloody things right, right. fighting with them is really really hard work it doesn't make a great deal of sense um yeah. but you know if you make one out of a hide, like a cow hide, you get the right size, the right shape, and you can swing it around with one hand without too much trouble. And yeah, you, you see shields like that all over Africa. Good point. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and the African shields don't, there doesn't seem to be a lot of, of studies, certainly in English, of, of the African shields before the colonial period. So I can't really link up the two traditions. But I, I just have a, a pet theory that, that somehow the two traditions are, are linked and, and it's, it's worth thinking that, you know, the Roman Empire extended into Africa, quite a long way into Africa. And there's always right. been this, this trade around the Mediterranean with African countries and Southern European countries and Eastern European countries and Turkey and all that lot trading amongst each other. So Exactly. Yeah, that was something I, I found when I, I looked into uh, some, some of the German material is that German traditions of trial by combat closely follow uh, river watersheds. Um, <clears throat> there's a, a distinctly Upper Rhine, Upper Danube tradition, and there's a distinctly Middle Rhine tradition with all the, the rivers that feed into it. If you want to figure out whether a town is in one tradition or another, you, you find a, a water map, and, and you, can, you can map out quite closely uh, how because different German regions uh, had, had different rules for, for trial by combat. And I kind of suspect that that the whole Mediterranean and the, uh, you know, it, it's fed by by the Nile and also by the Rhone, and, and that there were some linkages uh, through the the water routes into Europe. Uh, the same with the Danube that goes, you know, deep into to Eastern Europe. Um, and I think some of the the strange faceted wooden clubs that you see in the German manuals are that they resemble these these faceted maces that you you find in, in Eastern Europe and, and points east of that. 
Oh yeah. Good so point. anyway, that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to you know uh, endow uh, some some PhDs in, in Near and Middle Eastern studies to Honestly, to go and look at, in, at all of these traditions. In today's market, for a million dollars, you can probably get a hundred PhDs. Because <laughs> <laughs> let's face it, <laughs> minimum wage is like this distant dream for the average culture of philosophy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that made it a bit close to the bone. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> Sadly, yes. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Ariana. It's been lovely talking to you. You're very welcome. That was fun. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ariella. You can find the episode show notes, which includes pictures of the uh, horned staff that people used to do judicial dueling with. Um, at swordschool.net forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. And thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Dan Edwards. Dan is a parkour coach and teacher of teachers. He's a founding member and executive director of Parkour Generations, an international organization of parkour instructors with schools all over the world, and the author of the Parkour and Free Running Handbook. Now, that's all very impressive, but actually, probably the reason you should be tuning in next week is because Dan talks about actually taking a genuine blood oath, literally signing his name in blood on a, um, basically a membership of a martial arts school. And I'm not going to give you any more details than that because he really has to tell the story himself. But trust me, it is well worth listening to. So that's next week. To make sure you don't miss it, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next week. Mm-hmm.